Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Is the South a drag on the American economy? Or how about the red states? Do they bring everyone else down? Well, I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. <clears throat> While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founder, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. And right now, if you use the coupon code WASHINGTON, you get $70 off my latest class at McClanahan Academy, Reading George Washington. It's an awesome class. You're really going to understand George Washington, the real George Washington, when you finish it. But, of course, when you purchase any class there, you help keep this podcast free of charge. So head over to mcclanahanacademy.com, get a real history education. Also, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. Click on the heart button, the super thanks button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. And you can also... Click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. I do appreciate the feedback. Also, send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear and comment on YouTube for the algorithm. That also helps too. All right, well, this is actually a listener-generated episode. I received this particular article from the Washington Examiner several times. And let me set this up. Generally, when you get people talking about decentralization in America and independence, whether it's Texas or uh, whether it's you know the South talking about leaving or some red state thinking about getting out of the Union, right? It's not a blue state; it's a red state. Cal Lakes, it's something entirely different. Same thing with say the Second Vermont Republic or something like that, Free Hawaii, whatever it is, Independent Hawaii. But when you start talking about red states, red states leaving the Union. Red states going their own way. Red states doing things for their own independence. When you start talking about these particular movements, one of the general responses to that is that, well, yeah, go on, get out. Because you know what? If y'all left, we would be better off economically anyways. Because all the capital, all of the innovation, all the things, all the money is in the blue states. In other words, the red states are a drag on the American economy. There's a lot of people down there on public assistance in those red states. A lot of you know people that don't produce as much, they're not a, a, a net earner for the United States. They take more in than they give back. It's one of the common arguments. And historically, these red states have been in that particular position since the war. Now, since the war... Before the war, the opposite was true. The southern states before the war in 1861 had the highest per capita income in the United States. They were net producers. The net consumers 
of public welfare. When I say that, I'm talking about things like tariffs uh, and the benefits of federal spending, internal improvements. Those things went more to northern states than they did to southern states. Now, of course, people will pull out data and say, no, 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 McClanahan, you're wrong. Look at this data from these from these uh, ports here in New York. Look at this tariff data. Look at all this economic data. The North was paying more in taxes than the South. Well, they had more people, but not just that. You're not, you're not looking at the entire picture. Southerners per capita were paying more, you see. They had to pay more because there, the economic disparity was not that high between the two, and, and there were fewer people. So Southerners were generally paying more and getting less out of the general government than the North. In other words, the North was a net receiver of federal money, whereas the South was a net producer. So you had this situation, a very wealthy Southern section, and people recognized it. Now, a lot of that capital was tied up in slaves, but even outside of that, there was a really good article on the Abbeville Institute about this particular point. The South was still wealthier than the North. If you look at the value of farms for independent farmers, which, by the way, most Southerners were independent farmers. Uh, a very small percentage of the Southern population actually owned any slaves. So most Southerners were just in the same position as Northern farmers or Midwestern farmers. They were producing just like those people, and their farms were just as valuable, if not more valuable, than these other farms. And what did they not get? They didn't get any federally funded internal improvements. Nobody was going out and cutting canals for them based on federal dollars or putting in railroads or all these other things that, of course, Midwestern farmers were demanding. They weren't getting, uh, they weren't getting free land. I mean, you go out and look at how much land was being doled out in the West during this time period. They weren't getting that. In fact, if you go back and even look at George Washington or Thomas Jefferson and other people, they talked about land as a way to produce more so people had to pay less taxes. But when you're basically giving the land away, well, uh, you have a situation where uh, those people are getting more from the federal government than they're getting in. And of course, the corruption would be rampant when you start looking at how these how this land was ultimately divided up. During the 1860s, when the Republican, Republicans controlled Congress, they just really started giving it away. And the people that were making the most out of it were northern corporations. They would set up shell, basically dummy situations, where they'd put a house on it, the Homestead Act. They'd stick a house out there. Nobody would live in it, but they'd say it's ours, and they would get the best land, the choice land, so they could cut a railroad through there. And then they'd sell off what they didn't need. So there's a tremendous amount of corruption. Then, of course, you factor in the tariff, and what the tariff does do, it protects northern manufacturers. And those northern manufacturers would then make a lot of money, not just on the revenue of a tariff, but because people would be forced to buy northern goods. You see, it's a form of corporate welfare. So the north was a net benefit from federal activity, where the south was paying taxes and not getting much out of it. Now, you can say, well, but wait a second here. They could sell their cotton in the north. They, they could sell their cotton anywhere. It didn't matter. They could sell their cotton to Europe. They could sell their cash crops, whether it was cotton, tobacco, uh, rice, indigo, fruits, vegetables, grains. They could sell any of that anywhere they wanted. And they didn't have to have a situation where we had unfair, unfair prices, higher prices being paid for manufactured goods because the tariff was higher. So that's the whole thing as well. It wasn't just about, about the revenue being produced from the tariff itself. It was also about the cost of goods and the net benefit. So you see, there is a winner and loser when you start talking about federal policy.
Now, federal policy has winners and losers. You have people that are benefiting on both sides. You've got people on the corporate side who are making a lot of money. Inflation doesn't hurt a lot of corporations because they just pass on the costs. And, of course, the people at the top get the money first. So corporations aren't going to be hurting in a time of inflation. Now, as people can't buy as much stuff, maybe, but they just lay people off. They just do things like that. So the people at the top are never going to hurt during a period of high inflation. The people at the bottom can hurt from inflation. But what happens, of course, is then there's benefits that are conferred upon people that don't have anything because, of course, they're poor. And we don't want people that don't have anything to end up in the street, right? And some people make that choice anyways, but we want to try to help people. So there's that propping up, right? It's, it's another, it's a form of welfare. So you have two forms of welfare, but everybody in the middle pays taxes and doesn't receive as much in benefits as these other people. They receive some benefits from taxes, right? Talk about, well, your road is fixed and you got fire protection or police protection, or you got schools, whatever it is. You can say, well, there's benefits there for those things. But in terms of actual money in your pocket, the people at the top and the bottom get it, and the people in the middle are squeezed. Uh, William Graham Sumner pointed this out in the book The Forgotten Man. The middle class, the people in the that that make enough money to where they don't get any assistance, but that also don't make tremendous amounts of money so that they really have a net benefit from all these things, really get squeezed in this process. So you got people being squeezed, you got you got winners and losers. <clears throat> in the 1850s, that was a big bone of contention, right? You had winners and losers. So the South was a net producing area. The North was a net consuming area. There's benefits and burdens there. This is what Calhoun would say. We want the benefits and burdens of the union distributed equally. That's a real union. You don't, you don't hurt one section or one group of people at the expense of another. A union or one, uh, one state at the expense of another. A real union doesn't do that. A real union would benefit all and burden all equally. So what do we have now? Well, again, this is going back to this argument. Well, if the red states leave, that drag on the union would go away. We'd have a lot more money to do more things that we want to do in our states. We wouldn't be spending as much money propping up these places in the red states that are just a drag on the U.S. economy. They're a drag on American politics. They have horrible policies, whatever it is. We get rid of those people and they're out. Now, the same kind of argument was actually made in the North when it came to uh, the social policies, you had abolitionists, for example, that were more than happy to leave the Union and let the United States have the South. They thought, or the other way around. I mean, look at 1861, you got people like Lysander Spooner and abolitionists in the North saying, you know what, the South should just go. This is what we wanted anyways. If they leave, we get our United States without slavery in it. This is what we wanted. Of course, then abolitionists decided it was more important to fight for it. Well, because there is money at stake. I mean, that became important. There's money. I mean, this is what Lincoln understood. You can't let the South go. You're losing a tremendous amount of economic activity, a tremendous amount of revenue. Not just because of tariff collection, but because of all the things the South provided economically for the United States. When the war is over, of course, they become colonies of the North. You get all these... Northerners moving into the South and buying up land and setting up plantations and doing things that they could do to try to make the South a colony of the North. And this is the way it was viewed for a long time. If you wanted to make money, you started investing in the South and you, you use it as because the wages were lower, expenses were lower. And so people were going into these states because it was cheaper. 
That's still been the case since the end of the war. But the net result of that now is that as more and more people look to go to places like Florida and Tennessee, why would they go to Florida and Tennessee? Well, there's no income tax. Or Texas. Why would they go to those places? No income tax. You've got three states right there that people would love to live in. You know, why do corporations go to Delaware? Well, there's no corporate tax. There's also no sales tax in Delaware, uh, which is, you know, if you live in a place with sales tax, it's very, it's very strange you go to a place and it says $1.95 and you put down $2, you get a nickel back. I mean, there's no sales tax in Delaware. So, but people go to Delaware because of tax breaks. They go to Florida, they go to Texas, they go to Tennessee because there's tax breaks involved, you see. And then, of course, in a lot of these states, you have lower property taxes as well. You have lower taxes in general. So people have been flooding into these states for years because what they want to do is have a cheaper way of life. You, know, you, can, you can get a house for a lot less in these states than you can in, uh, in New England or in a mid-Atlantic state or in a western state. It's cheaper, right? And so you do have a lot of people moving in from, say, uh, the Midwest into, into retiring into states like Alabama and Florida and places like this. It's always been that way. I mean, this is something that you probably already know. But what's happened in all that, and plus you factor in the politics of all this, right? So you've got people that are now moving around because they want to be in a state that more reflects their political views. So you have a division in America appearing that more resembles the period after the war, right after the war, than before the war. Uh, the war really in many ways destroyed the Democratic Party, at least for a time. Uh, the Democrats didn't have the ability for, for several years to really make much headway in national politics until after Reconstruction. Then they started making some progress. And by that point, you'd start, you really did start seeing a real split north and south again. It was clearly divided. The late 19th century, you look at these election maps of the late 19th century, and it's really divided in America. You've got a real division between you know, what we would say red states or blue states. You've got it there. You can clearly see it. We're seeing that now again because of people moving and these states better reflecting the political views, the political culture of the people. And it, so you got people coming in from you know, northeastern states trying to live in a southern state because they want to be away from you know, northern politics. Unfortunately, a lot of these people are still not the same kind of political culture. They might they might have this, you know, similar views on some things, but when it comes to political culture, there's there's differences there, and that's also an issue uh, as well. But what they're also doing is bringing money with them. You see, this is the other thing: businesses, people with money, they're getting out of places like California, New York, New Jersey, and they're going to places that they think are better for them, better for their wallet, better for their bottom line. They're leaving behind these other places because they can make more money in the South. So what you're starting to see is an economic benefit. The South now, just like before the war, is starting to become the producing section of America, whereas New England, the West, the Rust Belt, the Far West, it's starting to shift a little bit. Now, of course, you know, California is a huge place and it's got all kinds of, California is a very diverse state. And uh, you've got all kinds of, you've got Silicon Valley, you've got all the tech stuff, you've got farmers in parts of California, very conservative parts. You've got a lot of different things going on in California. California really could be, just as Texas and Florida, their own countries. 
I mean, without question, Cal exit could happen, and it would be no it would be no problem for California to get out with their economy. Their economy is huge. So, uh, but you're starting to see some of this benefit. Now, let me go to this piece that was sent to me. It's from the Washington Examiner, and this was from July 6. And the the uh, it's by Jake Elbaum. And it's an opinion piece. It says, new data shows six southern states now contribute more to GDP than the entire northeast. Six southern states now contribute more to the GDP than the entire northeast. Now, for a long time, it was always the opposite. Well, you know, northeast is, is pulling along these southern states. They're dragging them along. These places are, are just awful when it comes to consuming taxes, right? And consuming uh, the benefits of the union, but they give nothing back. Now, Elbaum is saying the, the opposite is true. And he's, he begins the, with the line that's, I mean, this is something you see a lot. Liberals have long bragged that blue states are the ones primarily responsible for the U.S.'s great economy and rising GDP. And I mean, this is something you see a lot. He gives you a, he gives you a couple links. One is to a article at The Week, which of course is a very left-wing uh, or, uh, publication. Um, you've got um, a couple of pieces to the Washington Examiner, but that bragging, this comes from Hillary Clinton, saying, hey, you know, we, we've got, we've got uh, the Northeast and the, and the blue states. They're better than the, than the red states. Look at these poor red states. Uh, we've got to, you know, these people are dragging us down. This comes in like the basket of deplorables and all this kind of stuff, right? But as Elbaum is pointing out, maybe this is changing. So new data suggests that's changing. According to a report from Bloomberg, for the first time, six fast-growing states in the South, Florida, Texas, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Tennessee, are contributing more to the national GDP than the Northeast with its Washington, New York, Boston corridor. I mean, that's amazing, right? So you've got the Northeast now contributing less to GDP than these six states. Now, what's happened? I mean, look, I just mentioned Florida, no income tax. Texas, no income tax. Tennessee, no income tax. But then you also have Georgia. Atlanta is booming, right? That whole area is booming. You've got people from all over the United States moving into Atlanta. A lot of jobs there. The Carolinas. South Carolina is changing dramatically. And as, as I mentioned, these people are conservative. They're moving to South Carolina, but they don't have the same political culture as people that are from South Carolina. There is a difference there. Same thing with, with uh, you know, uh, North Carolina. There is a difference. So there is a drawback to this in terms of political culture. But in terms of economics, it's a boom, right? I mean, the other states are doing the same thing. Alabama's seeing the same kind of growth. People are leaving blue states in droves, and they're going to these red states. You're seeing a major demographic shift taking place in America. Elbaum says this initially became true in 2021, but the gap between these states and the Northeast has expanded over the past year. Today, those six southern states contribute 1.4 percentage points more to the GDP than the entire Northeast. That's amazing, really, when you think about it. This is, I mean, look, this is a relatively recent phenomenon. Became true in 2021, so in a couple of years we're seeing it, but it's growing rapidly. So, you know, 20 years ago, early 2000s, this is where you hear, oh, well, you guys are just a drag. You can leave. Go ahead and leave. Go ahead and leave. There's actually, you know, people, there's some discussion about uh, the panhandle of Florida. You know, it's the panhandle of Florida to be part of Alabama. There's been a debate about that for years. And the people in the peninsula of Florida used to say, yeah, you guys are a drag on us. 
You're a drag on our economy. You're a drag on everything. Is that always the case now? You look at property values in the panhandle. You look at the growth of the panhandle. Is that the case? I don't know. I haven't looked at any economic data. But certainly, uh, with more and more people wanting golf-run homes, that's a big deal. Among the main reasons for this is the massive migration from major cities in the Northeast, such as New York and Washington, D.C., to the South. Internal Revenue Service data shows that interstate migration helped steer about $100 billion in new income to the Southeast in 20 and 2021 alone, while the Northeast bled about $60 billion. That's a huge shift, right? Major shift from this place to that place. This is consistent with the data published yearly by the National Association of Realtors, which show that five out of the 10 states with the most out-migration in 2022 were in the Northeast with New York losing almost $300,000 people last year. North, New York losing 300,000 people last year. On the other hand, the top six states with the most in-migration were all in the South, Florida, Texas, the Carolinas, Tennessee, and Georgia. So there you go. New York loses a lot. California's losing, right? Remember, there's articles about this, how many U-Hauls are going out of California. They're having a hard time getting any coming in because people were leaving so much. They were starting to charge a premium for one-way trips out of California. They couldn't get U-Haul trucks in California because nobody was dropping them off there. They're all leaving. And, and you've got, uh, you know, just recently there was a, a Scott Bayo has decided he's getting out of California. I mean, so you've got people that are saying, well, I'm out of this place or I'm going to this place or I'm leaving here, whatever. But it's not just the individuals who are fleeing for red states in the South. Bloomberg reports that according to census data, corporations are also flocking there with a record number of firms moving south after the pandemic. Bloomberg partly attributes the significant migration of the south to the warmer weather, lower taxes, looser regulation, and cheaper housing. The data backs it up. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, these are, these are economic reasons, right? Well, the weather's nice, too. People don't want to live in the snow and ice and everything else. Once you experience places without that, you don't have to worry about going shoveling snow all the time and breaking ice and all that. It's a little nicer, but... Uh, there are places in the Midwest where you have cheaper housing, lower taxes, things are not maybe necessarily lower taxes, but cheaper housing. That's an issue. Um, the weather, though, is worse. Taxes are a little higher. Maybe regulations a little, uh, little more, right? So the South offers all of these things. The data backs this up. However, it says there is an added factor that is hard to quantify, and it is about the atmosphere in the South that makes individuals and businesses alike feel wanted. We now have more employees in Texas than New York State. It shouldn't have been that way, said J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon. Well, because of the the business climate in the South, you've got people that are more interested in these things in the South than, say, in the North. So you've got a different kind of economic climate, a different kind of social climate, a different kind of political climate, and people like it, and they want to go there. So this gets us back again to what, are we heading towards a situation where You've got the South, the, the, the producer again, constantly being uh, uh, you know, criticized by the blue states for being backwards, the deplorables, whatever. And they just say enough, and they're out. Is that going to happen? I don't know. There's a lot of talk about decentralization now. Is, this, is the economic benefit now going to start being in the South and people say, you know, we don't need you anymore. You're actually a drag on us, and all you do is drag us down whether it's through your politics, your negativity, whatever it is. You just drag us down. We want out. Maybe that's it. For those who have been tracking population shifts over time, this should not come as too much of a surprise. 
However, if one, if one had only been listening to the corporate press over the past few years, one could easily be shocked. After all, news coverage on Florida, Texas, and Tennessee have painted them as dystopian hotbeds of bigotry and authoritarianism, where students aren't allowed to read books and minorities must be in constant fear. And again, that's one of the funniest parts. I, I read that uh, piece about you know the new national anthem and how somehow these people from California were going to be just abused if they drive through uh, Dixie. You know, it's, it just doesn't make any sense. It's it's about fear. The issue, of course, is the caricature couldn't be further from the truth. We know this because of the facts, but we also know this is because people ultimately vote with their feet. There's a reason why so many people are moving to these red states despite the slanted news coverage. Similarly, despite the terrible things some people say about the U.S., there's a reason millions of people would literally risk, literally risk death to come here. Rhetoric is cheap. People act based on conditions in the real world. Again, that's true. Right? You have to wonder why so many people want to flood into the United States. What is it about the U.S. that's better? Well, it's a better, more stable environment than many of these uh, South American countries, which uh, are not politically stable or they have a lot of violence and other things. You can understand. I mean, looking at some of the violence going on in Mexico, for example, why people would want to get in the U.S. And, but, of course, people bring that stuff with them then in some of these other Central American countries. People bring that stuff with them. That's the problem when you look at some of these things. This is something people have been saying for years. You know, when people are trying to get in the U.S. in, say, the 19th century from, say, Eastern Europe, or even before that, from Ireland or Germany, the anti-immigration stuff there, they bring the troubles that they had with them. There would be no mafia in the United States, for example, without immigration in from Italy as Mussolini kicked those people out. It's the only reason it's here. It's the only reason we have uh, the Italian organized crime families is because they were booted out of Sicily. And they ended up here. And you're going to see some of that with other parts of the world bringing all that stuff here. It's why people are so critical of this. They don't want it here. Leave it where it is. But the United States has become the place where everybody that can't go somewhere else goes. He says, it's a great thing that a region of the country historically not known to be an economic powerhouse, but that's not true. It was an economic powerhouse before 1861. It was the economic powerhouse. Has now turned the tide. Well, it's, it only became because of Reconstruction and the war that that section became economically destitute. It ruined it. There's a great book about this by the Kennedys, uh, Punished with Poverty. And of course, if you read Phil Lee's Southern Reconstruction, also a great book. They get into how the South really was punished economically after the war. Things like reparations and all this stuff. It's already happened. It's already happened. But people don't see it. Because they don't look at it. It wasn't called reparations or it wasn't called, you know, it's already happened. These things have already happened in the United States, but we're just still talking about it. Maybe more liberals will now refrain from making snarky comments about how their states are the ones actually contributing and instead focus on fixing the problems that incentivize so many people to flee. No, that's not going to happen. They won't do that. That's, that's, that's wishful thinking. They're not going to do that because that makes a scapegoat. It's a, con it's a convenient uh, scapegoat for, for everything. Well, it's all because of them. I mean, it's just like symbols, monuments, whatever. It's all because of these things that our situation is so bad. It's all because of these systemic things that everything is so bad here. And they don't ever reflect that maybe their policies and what they're doing is actually doing more harm than they think. 
They're not going to do that. They're going to continue to have the scapegoat. They're going to continue to run this out there, even if the data doesn't show it, because that's what they do, right? Even if the data points into another direction, they don't really care about that. They only care about the narrative. And this narrative doesn't fit their worldview. Right? Their worldview is they're the best. This comes down to kind of a you know Yankee self-righteousness. They're the best. Everybody else is the worst. You're all deplorables. You do bad things. Your economy stinks. All this kind of stuff. When in reality, the opposite is true, which is why people are moving there. So um, I found this piece fascinating. Of course, people you know wanted me to comment on this because it does have a historical slant to it. There are some things going on here that are, as the piece says, the piece is actually incorrect. Historically, the, the South, the red states, if you want to call them that, were more economically forward in terms of you know GDP and production and per capita, all those kind of things in the North. The North was receiving more benefits from the Union, at least ostensibly, than the South. And so this is Calhoun's position. It's a very Calhounian position. What this piece is getting to in some ways is a very Calhounian situation. We have to weigh the benefits of union, calculating the value of union. The union should benefit all and burden all equally. Does it necessarily do that? These are big questions in the 21st century. How does a union benefit one section, one state, one people compared to another section state people? And people are starting to ask these questions very carefully and thoughtfully in the 21st century. We didn't ask these questions so much really from the war up through World War II. This is not something we asked a lot of. But in the last 30 to 40 years, people have started to ask these questions more and more because they're starting to look at politics and economics and all these things. They're saying, well, you know, I, what do I get out of this? What do I get out of the union? What is my state? What is my section? What, what do we get out of these things? Maybe the answer isn't full-scale full secession. Maybe the answer is some kind of regional governments. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. Some type of new political decentralization model. People have to talk about this, but in order to do that, to start the conversation, you have to get people out of the Lincolnian mindset. You have to get people out of this, you know, one size, you know, one nation, indivisible kind of mindset. It starts with education. And if you can do that over time, people will start to recalculate the value of union and maybe come up with a solution that does allow for states to be themselves. Hey, that's called federalism. Or maybe regions to start looking at things. Maybe you have a Western region, a New England region looking at things. And there's not so much pressure put on these other places to be like the South or be like New England or be like California. That's the real issue. The angst we see in America, and I've said it for now eight years, the hand-wringing is because we have one-size-fits-all top-down government. And what this piece shows is that people are leaving areas because they know Think Locally, Act Locally actually works. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.